1: Uh, Ephesians chapter number six. Now, my message this morning, if you're if you're a regular tender and a member, you will immediately recognize my message will be a little different this morning. But if you're visiting, I acknowledge that our message is a little different this morning. And that uh, fact is that uh, uh, I'm not preaching three points and and illustrations and uh, introduction and conclusion. I I greatly desire to address something that's been a, a really a burden on my heart, and what we've seen uh, over the last year or so. And now that we are all now that we all have our handouts, if I could have everyone's attention this morning, because it's important you understand where I start from, so that you understand where I end. First and foremost, we're a church. We are not a political organization. I'm thankful for that because the divisions that would be among us and the fighting and wrangling that would be among us would be severe. We are not a political organization. We're a church. And our loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And don't want that to ever be confused. And there are things that we can absolutely disagree on. Do you know that we can disagree on inflation and the cause of it? And it's terrible right now to have to pay the gasoline prices that we're paying. Be thankful you don't live in California where there are sections of California that are paying $7 a gallon for gas. We could argue about the cause of inflation and who's responsible for that. Is that a Republican, a Democrat? Uh, What are the policies are when it comes to inflation? But I would submit, generally speaking, that's not a spiritual issue. That's someone who's made some bad choices along the way, and we are now the recipients of those bad choices. Uh, I would submit that we can have some strong opinions about the border, but I don't know that we can make a case that that's per se a spiritual issue. I'm thankful that uh, in recent days, the United States Supreme Court has made a decision that was a spiritual decision. And that is, is that uh, even though they kicked it back to the core, the, into the individual states to make that decision, what they were saying is that there is a problem when uh, our country says it's okay to kill babies. And I submit to you that is a definite spiritual issue. Abortion is wrong; it is murder. God is not pleased with this. Thirty-four million people that should be living in our country have been wiped out because of sin. That is a spiritual issue. And if you disagree with that, we would be at odds, not over our opinions, we'd be at odds over the Word of God because the Word of God says, thou shalt not kill. And so abortion is murder, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's evil. And by the way, it's brought a lot of shame to our nation to be a first world country and to be able to abort babies as freely as we can. In fact, I have personally counseled Uh, Ladies who sit in this church this morning who have wept in my office as they've talked about having an abortion and the guilt and shame that they've had even to this day, even though it took place many years ago. Why is that? Because we know it is wrong. This last week, there's been a raging debate on Facebook and Twitter about churches who will talk about the independence of the United States. In fact, there is a raging debate among uh, pastors about whether or not we should acknowledge anything on this Sunday about the independence of our country. I think you know where we stand, on which side of that debate we stand. Now, please listen carefully. I do not want to be confusing this morning because I have realized that we're live streaming and whatever I say is forever recorded and, and uh, anyone could pick and choose what they want to hear and believe. Uh, there's a problem for any church not willing to acknowledge that our country was founded on the principles of God. There is a problem that we are not willing to sing about We're not willing to preach about. We're not willing to acknowledge the independence of our country. In this respect, you must have a spiritual civics lesson to understand our country. What do I mean by that? We must go back in time to understand how our country was founded. I fear that those who are younger than me have missed much of what I'm going to say this morning and have prepared In fact, I'm supremely confident that our college-age, empowered group, and younger will, for the first time, hear many of the things that I say today. And that is, is that I would like to give us a spiritual civics lesson about our great country. Why should we celebrate what God has done in our country? If you find my message offensive, I say from the outset, I am so sorry. But I would quickly say this, I really uh, am not, I'm sorry for you, I'm not sorry for our church. Because our country was founded by men and women who loved God. Who wanted freedom to worship God. That's what our country was founded on. As I have mentioned in previous uh, times when we've discussed, uh, uh, discussed things going on in our woke society, let's not forget that in the halls of Congress, in many of the buildings, I have personally, as many of you have personally seen, there are verses in brass plates. There are verses uh, in the floor. There are verses on the ceiling from God's holy word that are there immortalized for, for everyone to see about how great our God is. I'm thankful for the United States of America, but I'm thankful for the people who, un, who, the people who understood why we were founding the United States of America. And that was so that we could do what we're doing this morning, that's worship God freely. In Myanmar, you cannot do this. In China, you cannot do this. In Sri Lanka, you cannot do this. And I could just start listing country after country. There are people that would love to be able to sit And listen to the preaching and music that you perhaps take for granted on a weekly basis because of our freedoms. To begin, I would like for us to examine Ephesians chapter 6 about why this is important to me. There's a passage of scripture that's been written that tells us that we are involved in a spiritual battle. Oh, my friend, we can look in Washington, D.C. We can look in state capitals across our country. We could make a compelling case that we're involved in a physical battle. Oh, that would be true. But there is a larger battle going on called a spiritual battle. Follow along as I read uh, 11 verses found in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 10. The Word of God says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And then he gives us a a, a command of what we are to do. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then there's a solution. There's an acknowledgement of the problem. The problem is we're in a great spiritual battle. Here's the solution. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. My friend, that's what we try to do every Sunday morning, is we stand before you, and we preach the truth of the Word of God. Then the Bible goes on to say, um, uh, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod, or covered with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may Open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father in heaven, I ask that you will help me to better to speak boldly but truthfully this morning. Father, may our church be a lighthouse in this Tucson community unashamed of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray if there be one here that your Holy Spirit would tenderly call them to you. And, the Father, today they would see their need of salvation. They would see their need of a life change through the finished work and in the person of Jesus Christ. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I would like to take you on a journey. And for many who are younger than me, this will be the first time they've heard a message like this. And for many who are my age and older, may you be reminded of some things that you would have learned in your school. It was on July the 1st of 1776 that Congress returned to session. And on July the 2nd, the Lee Resolution for Independence was adopted by 12 of the 13 colonies. Uh, New York has always been a step late and behind for it was seven days later that they decided to, to um, sign that document. The wording of the declaration was considered, and the discussion in Congress resulted in a few more alterations and deletions, but the document remained mostly as Jefferson had intended. And then there was a process of revision that continued through July the 3rd, and then late in afternoon on July the 4th, then at last, church bells rang out over Philadelphia. The Declaration of Independence had been adopted. John Hancock, the president of the Congress, was the first to sign. And note that when the declaration signed, I want you to notice what happened. History records that the church bells rang out. The church was thrilled. Oh, that it would be some 246 years later that the church would would still be heard from, that the church would be strong, that the church would be bold, that the church would stand. Our message uh, would signal intolerance to those things that threaten our basic biblical freedoms. Anyway, on this, the annual anniversary of our nation, it's appropriate to consider those forces which led to the, that cataclysmic break of the colonies from Britain. Our, I really believe that our founding, far, uh, founding fathers were some of the finest leaders on the continent. They were merchants and farmers. They were attorneys and ministers. They were men of great energy and passion, seeking to develop a classic system for governing the colonies. But above all, they were dedicated to bringing the nation to a foundation of biblical faith with honesty and humility. Have we lost that? We certainly have. Consider Benjamin Franklin. He was an ardent education of uh, of uh, he was ardent advocate of education, and he urged that schools quote teach the necessity of a public religion and the excellency of the Christian religion above all others, ancient or modern. He was also one of the chief advocates for a paid permanent chaplain of the new Congress, and when he helped found the College of, of his own namesake, he insisted that it be built on Christ. The chief cornerstone, George Washington, openly promoted and relied upon the Christian faith. He, too, affirmed the importance of children, learning above all, quote, the religion of Jesus Christ. And his reliance on prayer is well documented. Consider these words from his prayer book. Almighty God. We make our earnest prayer that thou will incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government and to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens of the United States at large. Oh, there's Thomas Jefferson. He invoked the blessing of God, and he cited Scripture in many instances. And I want you to remember that it was he who wrote the immortal words uh, pledging to the citizens of that young nation that they were endowed by their Creator with a capital C, with certain inalienable rights. And By acknowledging God as their giver of rights and the author of life, Thomas Jefferson expresses the reliance that he and his compatriots had in God. It was a bold move by the framers of the declaration uh, that they chose to make to include so many scriptures and so much about God and and biblical principles. But they were convinced that the sole choice uh, uh, remained for them to sign that document so that others would know who signed the document. Thomas Jefferson, he was appointed to draft the document. And his, it was his task to express the convictions in the minds and hearts of the American people after many years of frustration and oppression. Because they believed that the British crown had no right to tax them so brutally, the self-evident truths of Jefferson spoke were born out of a religious views of the founding fathers that God is the giver of our human rights and not some king. And that it is his intent that his people people should enjoy those rights, including the right to self-government and taxation as well as religious freedom. So in signing the Declaration of Independence, they were genuinely, as Dwight mentioned a few moments ago, putting their very lives at stake. And for any of them, they knew that they could be captured and that they could be tried for the crime of treason. Here's what's interesting. It did not hold any of them back. Uh, John Hancock is said by his own testimony, the reason that he signed his name so big is that he didn't want the king to have to put on his spectacles to see who signed this decoration. Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island is said to have guided his right, ha- right hand with his left due to a nerve disorder. And his words as he signed were these, My hand trembles. But my heart does not. Five signers of the Declaration of Independence were captured by uh, the British. And they were tried as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. And another had two of their sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died. From wounds in the Revolutionary War, they signed and they pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor. What kind of men would do this? Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers at, 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 at large, um, and they were men of means. They were well educated. Well educated, but these men still signed this Declaration of Independence, knowing that they could lose. Everything. Carter Braxton of Virginia, he was a wealthy planter and trader. He saw his ships swept uh, from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his, his home and his property to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the pretties that he was forced to move his family constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. And the battle At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters, and he quietly urged General George Washington to open fire. His home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and his properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His field and his gristmill was laid to waste. And for more than a year, he lived in the forest and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. We were British subjects at that time. We fought our own government. And some of us, some of us, even here this morning, we take these liberties for granted. In fact, there are those who would agree with the woke left. Why would we celebrate our country? And the woke left has disdain for the United States of America. Why is that? They do not understand the spiritual battle that took place in creating this great country. So tomorrow, on the 4th of July, I would like to encourage you to take a couple of minutes while enjoying your 4th of July and maybe silently thank these patriots that I have just mentioned who literally gave their fortune, literally died, families died, so that we can have this freedom this morning. Consider some quotes. Oh, they're powerful. For men like James Madison, the belief in a God all-powerful, wise, and good is essential to the moral order of the world and to the happiness of man. What an incredible statement. Or consider Noah Webster. The moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all civil constitutions and laws. Or how about John Quincy Adams? The highest glory of the American Revolution was it connected in one indissoluble bond, the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Or what about Benjamin Franklin? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. George Mason, My soul I resign into the hands of my almighty Creator, whose tender mercies are all over his works. How about John Jay? Unto him who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his manifold and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation by his beloved son. I would just love for someone who's a current congressman to stand up and quote that quote. Or David Brewer. In the common schools, the Bible has been as much a textbook as the New England primer. It is also, it is only within very late years that any objection has been raised to its daily use. Or Daniel Webster. If we and our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us. My friend, we are in the catastrophe now because we've neglected what the Bible says and instructs us to do. Roger Sherman, I believe that there is one only living and true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. What politician would have the courage to say that today? President Washington professed his Christian faith publicly in many of his speeches and writings. He said this, quote, True religion offers to government its surest support. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. In his personal prayer book, again written in his own handwriting, He says this, "O most glorious God in Jesus Christ, my merciful, loving Father, I acknowledge and confess my guilt in the weak and imperfect performance of the duties of the day. In fact, history records that President Washington, he knelt and prayed and read his Bible for one hour before he would begin his day. The President of the United States. I wonder how many of us do that. He wrote this, Almighty God, as a prayer. He prayed what I'm about to share with you as a prayer to God. I yield thee humble and hearty thanks that thou hast preserved me from the danger of the night past and brought me to the light of the day and the comforts thereof, a day which is consecrated to thine own service and for thine own honor. Let my heart, therefore, gracious God, be so affected with the glory and majesty of it that I may not do mine own works but wait on thee Discharge those weighty duties thou requirest of me. Give me grace to hear thee calling on me in thy word, that it may be wisdom, righteousness, reconciliation, and peace to the saving of the soul in the day of the Lord Jesus. Grant that I may hear it with reverence, receive it with meekness, mingle it with faith, and that it may accomplish in me, gracious God, the good work for which thou hast sent it. Bless my family, kindred, friends, and country. Be our God and guide this day forever for his sake, who lay down in the grave and arose again for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. That's the president of the United States who wrote that. My friend, that's how our country was founded. Lyndon B. Johnson said this, the men who have guided the destiny of the United States have found the strength for their task by, give, by going to their knees. This private unity of public men and their God is an enduring source of reassurance for the people of America. Consider and contrast these great, great men of yesteryear to those with great brashness who we are often entertained by in what we call Hollywood. Oh, please listen. We follow, we like, we give kudos, whatever terminology you want to use, to all the Hollywood elites. And somehow we're able to dismiss their putrefying sin. And we're able to somehow overlook that as we watch the filth and garbage that Hollywood points out. In fact, it reminds me of an interview by Richard Gere. In front of a crowd that included Hollywood actors, actresses, and all of the elites, Richard Gere said this, quote, One thing I've learned in my life is never to trust anyone who thinks he exclusively has God on his side. I wonder what Hollywood, the woke left, those who are trying to cram the LGBT, X, Y, I, Q, U, Z movement down our throats. I wonder what they would have to say to trusted George Washington, who said this, and tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure you myself that it expresses your sentiments not less than my own, nor of my fellow citizens at large less than either. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Or Abraham Lincoln who said this, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Mine own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. Or Grover Cleveland who said this, Above all, I know there is a supreme being who rules the affairs of men and whose goodness and mercy have always followed the American people. And I know he will not turn from us now if we humbly, reverently seek his powerful aid. That is still true today. He will not turn from us if we reverently, humbly seek his powerful aid. Or to the Hollywood woke left, what would they have to say to Dwight D. Eisenhower who said, Without God, there, sh- there could be no American form of government nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic expression of Americanism. My friend, why do we celebrate the 4th of July weekend? Because without him, we do not have America. America will cease to be great when we finally turn our back on God. And we will be no different than the rest of the world. In 2009, and most of our younger people will not have any idea about this man, but there was a guy by the name of Paul Harvey. He lived just a couple hours up the road in Phoenix, and in February of 2009, he slipped into eternity. Before he died... He said this, If I were the devil, If I were the devil, I would gain control of the most powerful nation in the world. If I were the devil, I would delude their minds into thinking that they had come from man's effort instead of God's blessings. If I were the devil, I would promote an attitude of loving things and using people instead of the other way around. If I were the devil, I would dupe entire states into relying on gambling for their state revenue. If I were the devil, I would convince people that character is not an issue when it comes to leadership. If I were the devil, I would make it legal to take the life of unborn babies. If I were the devil, I would make it socially acceptable to take one uh, to take one's own life and invent machines to make it convenient. If I were the devil, I would cheapen human life as much as possible so that the life of animals are valued more than human beings. If I were the devil, I would take God out of the schools where even the mention of his name was a grounds for a lawsuit. My friend, let me stop there and say, I am thankful that there were at least six people in the U.S. Supreme Court that last week acknowledged that it was okay for a high school coach to kneel on the football field and pray. You understand that that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. What kind of country do we live in that you can't pray with other people? But I'm thankful that in the 6-3 decision that there were six rational people that said, we must pray. But as Paul Harvey said, If I were the devil, let's take God out of our schools. If I were the devil, I would come up with drugs that sedate the mind and target the young. And I would get sports heroes to advertise them. Drugs? Has anyone heard about drugs? This past week. Did you see the article where they confiscated enough fentanyl to kill 25 million people in one drug bust? One drug bust, 25 million people. Our country is addicted to drugs, and Paul Harvey was right. Want to destroy a country? Make drugs available. Um, If I were the devil, I would get control of the media so that every night I could pollute the minds of every family member for my agenda. If I were the devil, I would then attack family, the backbone of our nation. I would make divorce acceptable and easy, even fashionable. If the family crumbles, so does the nation. If I were the devil, I would compel people to express their most depraved fantasies on canvas and movie screens, and I would call it art. If I were the devil, I would convince the people that right and wrong are determined by a few who call themselves authorities and refer to their agendas as politically correct. If I were the devil, I would persuade people that church is irrelevant, out of date. The Bible is only for the naive. If I were the devil, I would dull the minds of Christians and make them believe that prayer is not important, that faithfulness and obedience are merely optional. And then Paul Harvey ended this prose with this, this sentence that's so Indicting, I guess I would leave things pretty much the way they are. Only since he has died has our nation continued to spiral downward as all of these things, every one of them, continue to be so. Would you look back with me at Ephesians chapter 6? I want us to do a responsive reading at this time. And you will read the even verses, I will read the odd verses from verses 10 through verse number 20. And as we do this, I want us to recognize church, Tucson Baptist Church. And If you're visiting with us, thank you so much. I understand that you're not a member of our church just checking us out, passing through on a vacation. I went us to understand that as a church, we must acknowledge we're in a spiritual warfare. We're in a spiritual battle. We have the formula. We have the prescription of how to overcome this. The fact is, is the devil has dulled our minds spiritually. He's dulled our hearts spiritually that we have become weak, powerless because we don't pray and we don't obey. So be careful as we read this. For this is a strong charge to our church. Let's begin reading, and let me get a microphone. Let's let Pastor Jonathan help us here. Uh, let me find, uh, you have a microphone? So Pastor Jonathan has a microphone. He will help us uh, so you can follow him, and, uh, and you will read the, the even verse. But let's all participate this time. Verse number 10.
0: Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For
1: us who are a little bit older, when I meet on Wednesday, Pastor Howard meets on Wednesday and we talk to our senior saints, when we have private conversations scattered around the church, I'll hear our seniors say something like this It can't get much worse, Pastor. Jesus has got to be coming soon. It can't get much worse. It will get worse unless we, unless we follow this passage of Scripture, unless we're willing to boldly proclaim the truth. I encourage you, you if you have a problem being bold, I understand. It, the woke left is mean, nasty. They, they like to throw rocks, uh, both verbally and physically. Uh, they like to protest. Um, and that's not who we are, and so sometimes it's easy to cower, but I'll say this, if you invite them to church, I'll boldly stand, and I'll tell them about Jesus, and if that's the least that you can do, please invite them, and we'll tell them about Jesus, but we've got to reach our community. We've got to push back. We can't, we can't control what happens in Washington State. We can't control what happens in the uh, in the state of Maine. We can't control what happens in California or Texas or whatever state you want to put in there. But here's what we can. Is we can make a difference in Tucson, Arizona and surrounding areas. We can be bold. We can stand for truth. And people in our community can know there's a church that boldly proclaims the gospel of peace. Folks, let's boldly proclaim the gospel. And if That's hard for you. You invite them. You bring them, and we'll do it for you. Folks, um, I don't want anyone to leave here offended, and I realize I used a lot of different quotes. This morning's message is completely different than what we would normally do when we're studying prophecy. We're going verse by verse in Revelation. I understand it's a little bit different this morning, but I felt strongly by the Holy Spirit of God that we needed what I call a spiritual civics lesson for us to be reminded about how our country was founded, on what principles our country was founded, and it was none other than this book. And this is a book that the woke left spits on, doesn't acknowledge, and doesn't want. That shouldn't impact us. This is still the greatest book in all the world. And may we read it, may we follow it, may we never be ashamed of it.